Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast, your source for policy rants and raves from Tech Freedom, your Washington, D.C. advocate for the freedom to tinker and innovate. I'm Evan Schwarzschrauber, your host. On today's show, net neutrality and internet regulation. February 26th is the one-year anniversary of the Open Internet Order, where the FCC reclassified broadband as a under utility-style rules from uh, the 1930s, or what the commission would call net neutrality. Joining me in our DC studio to discuss this is a very special guest, uh, FCC Commissioner Pai. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining me. Evan, it's great to be with you. And also joining me is, again, third wheel and president of Tech Freedom, Baron Soka. Baron, thank you for joining me. Thanks. I'm going to host the next show myself. <laughs> so, uh, you know, net neutrality, the movement was uh, largely you know, driven by concerns of consumer harm, right? That if, if we didn't pass these very strict regulations on internet providers, that the sky would fall. So we've now had these regulations on the books since June of 2015. How many consumers have been saved from evil corporations, Commissioner? I, I think there's no telling. I mean, obviously, we were living in this digital dystopia until <laughs> June of last year when the regulations took effect. And finally, the sea started to part, uh, the light shone down, and now... Everything is great in the online world. But uh, no, in all seriousness, I think that highlights, uh, well, two of the basic problems I had with the net neutrality decision. I mean, first, that there wasn't any problem to be fixed. And secondly, that the solution is proving to be worse than any uh, purported symptoms that the patient was suffering. So let's get into some of the uh, negative side effects of the open internet order. Uh, we're, you know, six months in, seven months in. What's going on? Right now, uh, the core of the decision is being challenged in court. Uh, those uh, uh, challenges are going to be heard by the D.C. or have been heard by the D.C. Circuit, which uh, took uh, in the views of the various participants on December 4th. They'll issue a decision at some point in the near future, hopefully. In the meantime, however, the agency is still at work with a number of different uh, uh, parts of the open Internet order. For example, the Internet Conduct Standard. Uh, it is now hauling in companies like T-Mobile, like Comcast, like AT&T to justify various what I consider to be pro-consumer offerings uh, that those companies have uh, introduced into the marketplace. Yeah, we've talked about Bin John on the show before, uh, T-Mobile's program where uh, you uh, customers can stream as much video as they want without it counting against their data. How is the open internet order uh, affecting business models like zero rating? I think the proof is going to be in the pudding. It depends on what the agency does with respect to these uh, particular inquiries. Uh, I think it's disturbing, however, that in one month, uh, the agency says that uh, offerings like Binjon are, quote, highly competitive and highly innovative. If the very next month, hauls them in at the behest of certain politically motivated interest groups and says, we want you to justify what you're doing, explain how it doesn't violate the net neutrality order. And that's the kind of thing I think will end up potentially putting a chill on future businesses who are looking to innovate in this space. Uh, thus far, those companies have been willing to take that risk, but if the agency sends a negative signal in the future, I worry about where this could go. Isn't the irony just overwhelming that the argument for net neutrality was that, uh, that there might be a broadband company that might shut off uh, what a, a, a small edge company was doing. And so that uncertainty was going to strangle investment and innovation. We'd never see it, so we had to regulate in advance. And yet, so there's no evidence that actually happened, but we now have a very real situation where that dynamic is playing out, except it's the government that's the one that, that's really uh, infringing on the basic principle of permissionless innovation. Why don't people see that? I'm not sure why. I think it, because it's potentially such a seductive thing to be able to say that net neutrality 
just protects consumers. And that's something that, for better or worse, I think, uh, people and the press have swallowed whole without considering its actual uh, application. And, and how do you try to explain to people how much net neutrality expanded? It's like, you know, the, the, it's the concept that ate everything. It was, it was, first it was no blocking and no throttling and transparency, and now it's privacy and broadband taxes and, and general conduct standard, and, and, and where is it going to stop? Uh, that's a good question. I've used so many analogies over the last several months. Uh, Pandora's box, I've invoked Yoda, to, to, I mean, just, <laughs> you name it, to try to get the message across that this is not your dad's net neutrality. I mean, 10 years ago when we were debating these issues, it was the question about, well, if you have one company that has just a chokehold on the last mile of connectivity, you know, they, net neutrality is meant to address that issue. But now, I mean, net neutrality is... <laughs> Forcing the agency to look at service plans? I mean, really? We're actually scrutinizing whether consumers getting free stuff is a good thing or a bad thing? That's just that's mind-boggling. And the Indian re regulator just used the same concept to stop Facebook from giving away free data. Exactly. It's very much reminiscent to me of the activists who say, well, it's better that the people in Africa starve than they get genetically modified foods, because God only knows what can happen then. How it's much influence do you think what the FCC does uh, has around the world? So right now we're having this debate about zero rating, but you know, T-Mobile's offering it, still operating. Verizon's coming out with freebie data, still operating. So really, we, we haven't seen those programs get shut down yet. But what the FCC does obviously has an outsized impact on the world. Do you think other countries are taking the decisions that your agency makes and running with them? Without question. And your listeners should know that notwithstanding the fact that we are simply one communications agency among a couple hundred around the world, our agency's voice has a disproportionate effect abroad. And I can tell you that in other contexts, when I've had the opportunity to travel abroad on government business, uh, for example, I was in Hong Kong uh, this past October talking about over-the-top video, and there was a keen interest in the potential uh, that the FCC might regulate the over-the-top video market, and they were very interested to see what we were going to do. And the implication was if we decided to cross that Rubicon, it would make it much easier for them to do so as well. And that's our precedential effect is not limited to our borders. It, it goes well beyond, and that's part of the reason why I tend to take a much more restrained uh, market-based view of uh, our regulatory approach. And a lot of the opposition to the open internet order was about the substance and what the negative impacts on the marketplace would be, but it was also about the process. It was about how did we get to this decision? Because in May of 2014, Chairman Wheeler unveiled a proposal that was meant to protect net neutrality, but it was not using Title II 1930s style rules. Then President Obama, who appointed you to the commission in 2012, in November of 2014, he interfered with an independent agency in its rulemaking. And then we went from a relatively modest proposal to a very extreme one in many people's views. So can you get into some of the process behind how this decision was made and why you and uh, your, your colleague, uh, Commissioner O'Reilly, have had some issues with the way that the agency is operating? Absolutely. I think it is important to start with the basic premise that the FCC is supposed to be an independent agency. Although I and my colleagues are appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate, nonetheless, once we get to the FCC, we are supposed to be immune from those kinds of political considerations right. that motivate the elected branches of our government. They can't have a say in what we do, and we shouldn't make political pronouncements about what they do. Uh, here, however, this became an extremely politicized issue 
in shortly after the November 2014 elections when uh, President Obama decided he wanted to make a very prescriptive, very direct <laughs> instruction to the FCC to adopt what is called Title II, uh, utility-style regulations for the Internet. And it wasn't simply the case that he said, you know, well, I think net neutrality is important and I hope the FCC looks at it. I mean, if you look at the actual words he used, I want the FCC to adopt Title II style regulation for the internet. I don't want there to be an exception for things like the mobile industry. I mean, it was the kind of thing you would expect a commissioner to say, frankly. Right. And once the President of the United States says, I want the agency to do X, the members of the majority feel very compelled to, and in fact, in this case, ultimately did, follow those instructions, compromising the objectiveness of the agency, injecting a whole bunch of politicization into uh, an area that shouldn't have been politicized. Yeah, of course. I mean, if the president's the one who appoints you and you're from the same party as him, if he gets on you know, YouTube and makes, a, you know, makes his intentions clear and what he wants, it's going to be very difficult even for an independent regulator to ignore that. Right. Yeah, I, I would just add to that. It's not an accident that that happened just shortly after the president's party took a drubbing in the midterm elections. It's been very clearly documented afterwards. They were looking for ways to assert their authority to show that the president was not a lame duck. Shape his legacy. Absolutely. Yeah, and then, so this is the one they chose. And, and you know, that's, that's one thing. You, you can make the argument about this being an independent agency. But it would be rather different if they at least had thought this through, if they knew what they were talking about. That, the text of that speech makes clear that they really don't know what they're talking about. And the clearest example of that is they reference Title II of the wrong act. Right. They order the FCC <laughs> to invoke Title II of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which is a totally different thing. It's not what we're talking about at all. To me, that suggests that that speech was written by the political people and that, that there's the people who are making these major decisions about breaking bipartisan consensus on, on telecom policy don't know what they're talking about. Oh, come on, Baron. You can't expect a non-lawyer who's writing Obama's policy uh, proposals to get that right. I mean, there's only 60 years passed in between those two laws. Why does it matter which one he references? <laughs> so, but my question for you is, well, so, so what's the point? Why bother even having an independent agency that's supposed to be expert, supposed to be immune from, from partisan politics, and supposed to represent members of both parties? Why bother? If the chairman's going to run everything, if he's going to run roughshod over his colleagues, both Democrats and Republicans, if he's going to do what the White House tells him and what the angry mob that literally goes to his house and blocks his driveway <laughs> shouts at him about doing, why don't we dispense with this whole fiction and just, just run the agency like a branch of the Commerce Department? That's a very good question. In some ways, uh, you know, one could make the argument that we were in the latter days of Rome and the agency is simply following uh, its political masters. I certainly hope that's not the case. And uh, you know, under future leadership, I certainly hope we return to that tradition of uh, bipartisan, fact-based, independent, objective decision-making. And let's talk about what it's like to work at the FCC because the way the commission is uh, made up, it's always three commissioners from the president's party, which is Democrat right now, and then two from the Republican party. So it's understandable that there's going to be a lot of three, two votes, but you know, being an independent body, you're supposed to work with your colleagues. You're supposed to try to find consensus. What's it like for you from the minority party to, to work at the FCC right now? Are you getting the information you need? What's going on? It's been a little difficult uh, to be candid over the last uh, year and a half or so. And I think part of the reason is that uh, FCC leadership has decided to take a much more partisan 
uh, hard-edged approach to doing business. Uh, traditionally, the agency uh, has been characterized by consensus. Well over 90% of our votes are unanimous. Uh, when we do disagree, we disagree relatively, you know, with not uh, reasonably. We don't um, you know, throw bombs one way or the other. Um, but over the last 18 months, something dramatically has changed. For example, we are required under the law to have a meeting every month where we vote on things that the chairman has proposed. Right. Uh, under my two, uh, under the two chairmen whom I served in 2012 and 2013. Uh, those votes were 90% unanimous. Now we are down to 50%. Wow. When it comes to enforcement matters... But, but clearly that's your fault. You, you're, you're, you're a disagreeable person. Right. I, I think I was lying in wait for the current chairman uh, to come on, on board and when I would finally reveal myself and uh, in all my vast right-wing conspiracy glory. But, uh, uh, but I mean, even on uh, other than the monthly things that we vote on, I mean, if you look at enforcement matters, for example, everyone should be able to agree on what the law is and how it should be applied when it comes to enforcement. That's usually the way it's worked. I only issued one dissent over the first couple of years of my commissionership, and that was because I thought that the fine the agency was proposing was too low. Oh, over, wow. the, yeah, over the last 14 months, we have had more partisan votes on FCC enforcement matters than in the previous 43 years combined. Now, you know, look, call me crazy, but if I feel like I'm the control group here since I <laughs> haven't changed over uh, the time that I joined the commission, something else has changed and it's just become a much more partisan approach to decision making. And, and we're talking about, I think it's, is it $500 million in FCC enforcement penalties that have been totaled up? Uh, yes, yeah, so the agency loves to tout the total fines it has proposed, but it actually doesn't collect those fines, which is where the rubber meets the road. We've asked for information, for example, to see how much of uh, those proposed penalties have been collected. We can't get that information. From what we can tell, it's just a tiny fraction of that. So are your colleagues more interested in potentially the headline they get from the fine than actually recouping the money? <laughs> There's no question. It's a headline-driven enforcement process. I mean, if you look at some of these decisions, uh, there's been a tremendous effort made in making sure we get these uh, enforcement actions out the door, but very little interest in making sure that the companies actually pay the fine or that these decisions get litigated quickly. It's, uh, you know, get the headline first and then claim to be a consumer-focused agency later. And critics of Title II had a real issue with the lack of uh, public notice and uh, the way that the, the rulemaking process goes on. Um, do you, what sort of uh, process reforms do you think that the FCC could adopt maybe internally or maybe could be imposed by Congress to make rulemaking more open, more transparent, to get the American people more involved, to get you as a commissioner more involved? What would you recommend? There, there are a lot of them that I would propose and I have proposed. Here's a really simple one. The agency should publish whatever it's considering doing before it votes on it. Right now, for example, the net neutrality decision, when the chairman uh, delivered it to me and to my colleagues, it was something like 317 pages. Nobody could, outside of the agency could see it. And so whenever we would have a meeting about it, people would say, well, we don't know what is in the proposal, but here's what we want you to do. And it, was, it just struck so many people, including my own parents, as absurd when I told them, look, I can't tell you what is in this document until after we voted on it. Publishing it, making sure that there's full transparency in advance, would go a long way in making sure that these kinds of shenanigans don't uh, happen. Uh, so, Commissioner Pai, favorite Kafka novel? <laughs> uh, the favorite one has to be The Trial. I mean, I think uh, that was one I invoked uh, with a recent enforcement action we took against AT&T when I dissented. And 
saying is, you know, it's not enough that you must be condemned in innocence or in ignorance. Uh, you also have to be condemned in innocence, and that's essentially the approach we've taken. Well, since you since you mentioned since I mentioned Kafka, let me just say so we we just filed a brief recently complaining about the Federal Trade Commission found a great passage of Kafka's from his Parable of the Law, where he says, our laws are not generally known, they are kept secret by a small group of nobles who rule us. We are convinced that these ancient laws are scrupulously administered. Nevertheless, it is an extremely painful thing to be ruled by laws that one does not know. If any law exists, it can only be this, the law is whatever the nobles do. Does, on a scale of one to 10, how familiar does that sound to you? Uh, I mean, I hate to say, as somebody who doesn't want to think of the United States as a banana republic, that <laughs> it should be anywhere close to 10, but my gosh, it's, uh, it's striking how accurately that captures so many aspects of communications law these days. Well, so you mentioned that they don't publish the rules before they vote on them, and uh, Barron has characterized that as uh, Kafka-esque. Uh, <laughs> but there is, that's kind of the precedent, right? Most, most FCCs have not published rules, but there is not actually a law saying they can't do it. So it would only take one transparency-minded chairman to kind of break the pattern, right? Absolutely right. And what other process reforms would you like to see happen other than the basic, you know, freaking show the thing to people before you vote on it? What else? A few basic ones. Uh, for example, we should have more deadlines and sunset clauses in our decisions. A lot of times we adopt regulations based on a snapshot of a marketplace in a moment in time. And just like with Polaroid photos from yesteryear, those snapshots fade with age or yellow with age. And so I would like there to be uh, more sunset clauses to say this decision will expire one year from now or two years from now, whatever it is, unless the agency affirmatively decides to retain it in the interest of uh, competition or the public interest. Same thing with deadlines. A lot of times we never set any deadlines for ourselves and so the petitions for rulemaking or for declaratory ruling or other um, other requests from the public for an answer simply go unheeded and so I've been voting on things for example that were originally sought for which clarification was originally sought in the late 90s or early 2000s that's not something that a responsive agency especially one charged with regulating the digital marketplace uh, should do a final one I would suggest is creating a dashboard right now if I ask if you ask if a member of Congress asks, how many consumer complaints are pending at any given point in time? How many petitions for reconsideration are pending? Nobody can know the answer without a huge amount of legwork from a variety of different employees. We should have a single website where anybody can be able to see how the agency is doing across a variety of different metrics, how long it takes us to accomplish our goals. That would incentivize, I would argue, the agency to be a lot more responsive and uh, forward-thinking. Looking ahead, the open internet order will be a year old on February 26th. Uh, are there things coming down the pike? It's, you know, it's obviously over 300 pages of regulation. It's not just about net neutrality. Uh, what should listeners be looking out for? Are their broadband bills going to go up? You know, what else is going to happen? Uh, certainly one thing that uh, people are going to be looking out for is uh, wh when and how uh, the D.C. Circuit decides a challenge to the net neutrality regulations. Another thing that's uh, coming down the pike, I hope, is a bipartisan support for legislation that would speed broadband deployment. Uh, the House Energy and Commerce Committee, for example, is uh, taking a leadership role in proposing uh, different ways to streamline the regulatory process so that companies can you know, deploy uh, the nuts and bolts of these broadband networks more quickly, more efficiently, and to deliver faster, better, cheaper internet to consumers. Uh, another thing to watch out for is what action the FCC takes with respect to spectrum. Uh, the airwaves are so critical for mobile broadband these days. Right. We have an incentive auction coming up at the end of next month, uh, the end of March. 
We also have... Uh, and, and what will that do? Uh, that will essentially uh, set up a, uh, an auction in which television broadcasters would be able to voluntarily relinquish some of the spectrum they hold and we would use that spectrum and then turn it around, turn around and sell it to the wireless carriers. Which would help to address the exploding demand for mobile data in the United States. Exactly. Exactly right. Uh, there's another important proceeding that I've been focused on a lot recently, uh, which is what I call the 5 gigahertz proceeding. Uh, this involves a slice of spectrum that would allow people potentially to get gigabit Wi-Fi oh, wow. everywhere. And that is the kind of thing that I think most American consumers would say, yes, we want more, you know, do it now. Uh, there are a few hiccups that have uh, happened over the last couple of years on the, in this proceeding, but I hope we can get that ironed out because this is really a bipartisan issue. What about broadband taxes? I mean, the FCC, when it reclassified broadband, it did not resolve that question of whether it was going to tax broadband that's pending over in that joint board that you guys have set up to, to avoid making those decisions yourself. What's going to happen? And thus far, you said it best. Uh, we've avoided making that decision. One of my colleagues who uh, heads up that joint board, which is deciding how much of a broadband tax to impose, has said that we are going to wait until the court resolves the net neutrality challenge before making a determination about Sounds like they're really confident in the court case. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think it just highlights the fact that when you tell the average person, do you want to pay more for the broadband uh, subscription that you've got, they say, of course not, right. absolutely not, and especially if it goes to the same kinds of purposes that our universal service fee and our phone bills goes to, you know, wasteful lifeline program, for example. Uh, that's not the kind of thing I think the agency should be in the business of. So top three wishes about the FCC? Uh, number one, that I could finally get, I could finally use and get caught reimbursed for using things like Uber and Airbnb. That would be very helpful to me. <laughs> the government won't let you? Uh, Uber, we have finally gotten across the finish line. Airbnb is still a no-go, unfortunately. Uh, another thing would be for that dashboard to be created. We just spent a millions, millions and millions of dollars updating our website. I would love for that dashboard to be created. Uh, finally, uh, I would say... Uh, for all of my colleagues to fully embrace uh, social media, they are all on Twitter, but uh, I would like to see them mix it up a little bit more as I've tried to do over the last couple of years. Well, I will say I have you starred on Twitter, so I get <laughs> notifications for all your tweets, and they are some of my favorite and most entertaining tweets, even though I do not care about football. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, and my, it drives my wife crazy that I tweet about so many random things that are wholly unrelated to the FCC's mission, from gravitational waves being detected to the NFL playoffs. But that's one of the great things about social media, though. So. But surely the FCC could use Section 706 to regulate any of those things. There's no limiting principle, so I don't see any reason why we couldn't. Well, now that uh, Baron is uh, finished ingratiating himself with you about your Twitter feed, uh, that's it for today's <laughs> show. Uh, my guest has been FCC Commissioner Ajit Pai. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, thanks, Evan, and thanks, and, Baron. And Baron, thank you for joining us on your own show. <laughs> and you can follow me on Twitter anytime you want. <laughs> follow us on Twitter at Tech Freedom or on Facebook.com slash Tech Freedom. Find this podcast in the iTunes store on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, please leave, leave us a review. It will really help us out. Thank you for listening. Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about 